Good morning, church. Welcome, everyone. Glad that you're here with us, whether you're in the building or with us online. It's good to be together and good to be worshiping the Lord together on this day. It was good. A few weeks ago, we went away, the family, uh, for a few nights up to the Catskill Mountains. And you know, a great way to grow in love, if you'd like to to be challenged a little bit in that, would be to jump in the Lenhart family van for a four-hour drive. Uh, Lots of lots of closeness with, you know, all seven kids together in one vehicle. And, you know, it, it's all right, like the first hour. And then after a while, you know, you realize, do I really like my sibling this much to be this close to them for this long of a period? But uh, we made it. Uh, we had a good time up in the Catskill Mountains. A uh, little bit of an adventure, lots of hiking. Uh, I did get a concussion, if you want to hear that story. uh can share that with you <laughs> later down the road. We were uh, hiking, and I got excited about a waterfall and ended up with a concussion. So uh, it was all good, a little bit of blood, uh, but no worse for the wear at the end and uh, recovered pretty quickly. But yeah, love is uh, definitely taking a four-hour van drive with that crew. Um, my favorite part is always that my wife is right next to me in the passenger seat. And she can help keep me sane and calm on the road when all the madness is going on behind me. Do you know, at some point in our lives, uh, for all of us, we get to a place where it's not enough for us to simply be told that we are loved. You know, we hear that a lot. We say that a lot, sometimes even through gritted teeth, right? I love you. But at some point, it's just not enough. Show me. Show me what this love that you claim you have for me looks like. You see, at our core, we all desire to belong, to connect. We want to know that we are loved. And somewhere along the way, simply being told this becomes an insufficient way of helping us know that we are truly loved. In all our lives, at some point, love grows and goes from this ambiguous word that we hear used in our direction, and it becomes something that we can actually see, that we can taste, even touch. We move from hearing that we are loved to seeing, to understanding, and to believing that we truly are. Love grows and moves from ambiguous to unambiguous as we watch, learn, and practice it ourselves. Love, as the scriptures describe it to us, is a gift. Real love as God's word unpacks it, is swaddled in grace and truth. It's wrapped in patience, in kindness, in gentleness, among a number of other qualities. And due to the enormous and often overwhelming nature of this word love, it is good for us, church, to frequently rehearse questions related to the nature of love. And so today we are going to respond to two such questions in the text that we're exploring together. The first is this, how have I been loved? And the second, then, how 
am I to love? And collectively, we're going to consider these questions in the text of John chapter 12 and 13. So if you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn them there or turn them on to John chapter 12. And we're going to explore these questions through the lens of Jesus' example and the words that he speaks in these chapters. And before we go there, let's pray and ask God's help for our time of study together. Father, we are thankful for your word. It is powerful and it is effective. And your spirit uses it to help us grow in many ways. And Lord, for much of our lives, we ask the question. We come to you and we wrestle with how we've been loved. Are we loved? Where do we fit in? Do we belong? And in your word, the answers to those questions are resoundingly clear. You have loved us with a love that is greater than we could ever describe. And we belong as your children. Father, these are truths that we can hold to with great security and comfort and hope in these days. So as we approach the text today, your word, our prayer would be that you would help us to know how we've been loved. And that you would then help us to discover, in light of that, how we are to love others in light of that love. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In John's narrative account of Jesus' life and ministry, there is a significant turning point that takes place in chapter 12. It is in chapter 12 where we find Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's a moment uh, that we will refer to often as the triumphal entry. The people, they're surrounding Jesus, they're declaring him as king with their lips, they're praising him, but many of their hearts are far off. For the vast majority that have gathered to celebrate this occasion, few realize where it's actually leading. And it is here where the outcome of Jesus' ministry is publicly declared and presented. Lines are drawn. Look at verses 42 and 43 of chapter 12, where it invites us to see. This is Jesus speaking. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. Sorry, this is John writing. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess Jesus to be the Christ, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise from men more than the praise from God. Immediately following these verses, Jesus is going to deliver his final public address where we can hear the desperation in his voice as the end of his public earthly ministry is drawing near. If you look at verses 44 to 50, there's a description here. It describes Jesus as shouting out. And as you look down at the text, we discover that motivated by his love for the people, Jesus is urgently calling all who can hear to believe. To see, to come to the light, and then to demonstrate their belief through obedience to a command 
that is eternal life. Look at verse 50. And I know that his command is eternal life. Thus the things I say, I say just as the Father had told me. The call of Jesus to those who have not yet believed is to embrace the praise of God above the praise of man. To believe and to receive eternal life. Quickly then, as curious readers, we are ushered from the very public nature and all the hustle and bustle of chapter 12 to what appears to be this very calm and intimate scene that's taking place in a room immediately before the Passover feast. The city life of chapter 12 gives way to this quiet, yet incredibly revealing and purpose-filled meal. And here we find Jesus dining with his disciples. Now his disciples, this is a different group than the general population of chapter 12. The disciples are part of Jesus' inner circle. And they're not a perfect group of followers by any stretch of the imagination. But they are his disciples nonetheless. And with chapter 13 laid open before us, we find Jesus kneeling before his disciples with a wash basin and a towel. The Savior of humanity will wash feet. It's hard for us to embrace this moment and to understand it for what it truly is. For Jesus' disciples, they would have been uncomfortable, even unsettled by this act. The act of foot washing was one that was reserved for servants and women, not for a king. A king wouldn't wash feet. A savior would not wash feet. The Messiah, the rabbi, the Lord. A Lord washing feet made no sense. And to think, Jesus is performing this act on some of the very people who would abandon him Betray him, deny him, even doubt him. And as you dip your toes into this chapter, note that Jesus waits until a portion of the meal has already been served. Look at chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. Watch the actions of Jesus here. Jesus got up from the meal. He got up from the meal. He removed his outer clothes. He took a towel and tied it around himself. He poured water into the wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel he had wrapped around himself. Now, the gospel writer here wants us to observe the intentionality of every act of Jesus in this scene. Now, it was customary at that time for a dinner host to provide a basin for foot washing that his guest, when they immediately came into the home, could use. But here, that is not what happened. Here, Jesus had waited until everyone was already seated and the meal had already started to be served. People had begun to eat. Now, think of our own experiences with dining. Yours are probably uh, a lot more peaceful than ours. 
In our home, experiences with dining can be rather um, wild, let's just say. A little crazy, sitting around the table and everyone trying to share food together. Uh, oftentimes, it doesn't stay on the table, especially for one of our children. It ends up everywhere, all around. But when you sit around the table and you dine with friends or family, what happens? Relax. What do you begin to do? You start to talk, to share, to relate to one another. Things grow comfortable. We loosen up a little bit. Conversation begins. There's this casual energy that's usually absent from the nine to five of our day-to-day -day lives. Strikingly, Jesus waits until this very moment. He doesn't want this action to be taken for granted. He didn't want the disciples to come in and go through the motion of washing their feet in a basin that's already been provided. He's not wasting a moment. The end is near and every second counts. Revisit again these words. Perhaps even experience for yourself every detail of this moment. Look at verse 4. Jesus gets up from the meal. He gets up. He removes his outer clothes. This would be his tunic. He then goes over and he takes a towel in his hands and ties it around himself. Now just pause here. If I invited you over to dinner at my house... And I was serving you, and we were sitting at a table, and we had been eating and talking and conversing. And all of a sudden, I got up, and I took off my shirt with a t-shirt underneath, okay? and I put it down. And I went over, and I grabbed the towel, and I wrapped it around my waist. You'd be thinking, right? What is he doing what is going on? And then, Jesus takes water. He pours it into a wash basin. Now think about this. The meal's on the table. He moves to one of his disciples and begins this act while everyone's sitting around the table enjoying a meal of washing that disciple's feet. And he doesn't Stop there. He takes his towel and he dries the feet as well. The intimacy of this whole act, perhaps now maybe even is causing each one of us a little bit of discomfort. Don't worry. I'm not getting a wash basin out this morning. I'm not coming for you. And no one's coming for you. You know, in some churches they still do that. I have friends that, that still attend churches that do foot washing. Don't worry. We're not doing that today. If this is your first time and you're like, oh, I didn't wash my feet this morning. It's okay. No problem. But the feeling of what's happening here, it's amplified in verses 6 to 11. You see it in Peter's posture and his words, right? No way, Jesus. Not a chance. You're not washing my feet. It's a response that Jesus is quickly going to rebuke. 
Now, we might be able to generally relate to this level of social discomfort that Peter was feeling about the whole situation. But Jesus gives further clarity to the motivation behind his actions in verses 15 to 17. Take a look. Verse 15 of chapter 13. Jesus is speaking here. He says, For I have given you an example. You should do just as I have done for you. I tell you the solemn truth. The slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent as a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you understand these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Do them. Jesus' example here is powerful. For those of us today that know who Jesus is and accept who Jesus is, Lord and Savior, to consider what he is doing in these moments, that he is getting down on a knee with a wash basin and a towel and washing the feet and drying the feet of his disciples. What a powerful example and testimony for every one of us to follow. And you know, not everyone there was going to be able to follow Jesus' example. He says, I've given you an example. But in the very next grouping of verses, Jesus identifies that in the room with them that evening was present the very one who would soon go on to betray him. Now, there is nothing in any of the gospel accounts that would lead us to believe that Jesus did not wash the feet of Judas. So we must very well assume that along with the other disciples, he did to Judas just as he had done to all the others. But here in John, Judas is explicitly identified as the betrayer of Jesus, while the fellowship around the table is still in progress. And what's interesting about that is that Judas, he's one of the in crowd. He's a disciple. He's in Jesus' inner circle, and not only in his inner circle, but he had so ingratiated himself to the disciples that none of them could make sense of what Jesus was saying when he identifies Judas as the betrayer. It didn't even connect. Judas held the money. A position that requires great trust. Look at verse 27. After Judas took the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are about to do, do quickly. Now none of those present at the table understood Why Jesus said this to Judas. Some thought that because Judas had the money box, Jesus was telling him to buy whatever they needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. 
No, but it's scary. Judas was so close to Jesus, yet he had everyone around him fooled. Not Jesus. Jesus knew. But here is a man who everyone thought was something that he actually was not. He was a hypocrite, a betrayer. And the fact that Jesus would allow Judas, Jesus allowed Judas, he wasn't tricked by Judas, he knew. Jesus allowed Judas to have such a significant role in his earthly ministry as the handler of the finances. It's nothing less than a tremendous demonstration of Jesus's grace and hospitality. Now there's a powerful transition in the text here. It's in verse 30, right at the end of that last statement we just looked at. Judas took the piece of bread and went out immediately. And it was night. The departure of Judas here in the text signals the beginning of Jesus' glorification, which is going to uh, include, as Jesus describes in verses 31 to 33, God being glorified. Jesus is going to a place where his disciples could not come. And so there's a natural question that begins to take root in the minds of the disciples. If people can no longer visibly see us with you, Jesus, how will they know that we are your disciples? How will they know? If we can't go where you are going, if we can't follow, how are people going to realize that we still follow you? If you've read the Gospels, you come to realize throughout them that much of the identity of the disciples have, has become wrapped up in their close association and visibility with Jesus. And, and a natural fear no longer present with Jesus what are we going to do? And how are people going to know that we're still seeking him, following him? And so to provide insight to these questions, Jesus gives a new command. Which actually isn't so new regarding its content. What Jesus is going to do in these next verses is he's going to restate an old and very well-known law, but he's going to give that law a brand new standard. Look at verse 33. Children, you will look for me. And just as I said to the Jewish religious leaders, where I am going, you cannot come. Now I tell you the same. I give you a new commandment to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Everyone 
will know by this that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. These disciples and those religious leaders who were Jewish, they had built their lives around following this law that we call the Mosaic Law. It's written in the Torah. It's interpreted by the religious leaders. You can find those laws still in the first five scrolls of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in those laws, there was a specific law related to how love should be demonstrated within a community. And that law is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It's on the screen. You must not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you must love your neighbor as what? As yourself. That's the law. That's what the people knew. The Pharisees would have had that memorized. The Sadducees and religious leaders. This would have been the kind of love that governed the life of the people. The disciples included. But if you read this and you see this in the law, there's a challenge here. Because this kind of love is dependent on something that's incredibly insufficient. What's it dependent on? How we love who? Ourselves. See, there's a challenge for me and maybe for you too. If I'm being honest, I'm not really good at loving myself. And if I'm supposed to love others as I love myself, and I have a hard time being kind to myself and loving myself, then you see how the standard is woefully inadequate? Doesn't make sense. It's insufficient. The law needed someone to fill it up, to make sense of it. That's what Jesus does. According to what was known in Leviticus, in the Old Testament law, one standard for love was treating someone in the same manner that we would treat ourselves. Hence the popular phrase we use sometimes even still today. I've used it with my children. My parents used it with me. You know what I'm going to say. Treat other people how you yourself would want to be treated. But you see, that statement assumes that we know best about the way that we want to be treated and what love looks like and how it should be doled out within collective and individual relationships. This is a new command that Jesus gives. Oh, and it's powerful. It's new. It's better. It's a perfect standard for love. We are to love in the same manner that Jesus has loved us. And so perhaps a more accurate phrase for us to use with one another today would be, 
love others as we have been loved by Jesus. Again, verse 34, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then verse 35, this is how you will be known as my disciples. Friends, when our love is practiced among one another in the manner and example of Jesus, we are demonstrating obedience. And this is how all will know that we are his disciples. Jesus' initial demonstration of the type of love that he's calling us to is revealed. It was foreshadowed in the foot washing, the washing and the drying of the disciples' feet around the dinner table. But we know as we sit here today, and the disciples would soon learn that the ultimate demonstration of this love would soon be revealed in the very public testimony and actions of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection from the dead, the greatest act of love ever known to the, to the human race. The new standard for love is no longer how we want to be loved or how we love ourselves, but the new standard for what love looks like, the new command, how it's best going to be demonstrated by those who claim to be disciples of Jesus is to love others in the same manner that Jesus has loved us. He washed the feet of Judas. He washed the feet of Thomas, who would later doubt. He washed the feet of Peter, who would later deny. And he knew, he knew then, his love was without condition. I always like to imagine Peter. Don't you love Peter? I love Peter. Peter's like one of my favorites in the gospel. Right? It, it, I always like to imagine what, he, what his facial expressions would have looked like in these moments. And, and I'm often pleased to find out that Peter's response is usually recorded in all the Gospels. Right? Poor Peter. He never got away with anything, did he? I mean, like these Gospel writers, they were always very excited to just throw Peter under the bus. Look at what Peter did! Right? And it's, it's, it's actually so good. It's so good because in so many ways, Peter is in the text. He's in the Gospels. His example is always before us because he's here to represent each and every one of us as disciples of Jesus. See, the character of Peter is, is like a mirror revealing my need for certainty. My often self-righteous, self-justified, insecure attitudes. They're just popping like kernels of popcorn off the page when I look at Peter's responses to things. In verses 36 and 37, we get a clear example of this. And as we read this, we are to recognize our own response may be similar to Peter's response. Not point a finger at Peter and saying, oh, Peter, look how silly you are. But rather, 
seeing ourselves sometimes in the same responses. Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Just tell us. Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Isn't it interesting when you look at Judas and Peter and you compare and contrast these characters in the gospel accounts, the intentions of Judas and Peter are on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to evaluating intentions and motivation. Judas intends to betray and harm Jesus. That's his intention. Peter's intentions are, are not to harm Jesus. He wants to support Jesus. Judas is going away, right? Verse 30, Judas goes out. He goes away. What does Peter want to do? Peter wants to go with. What I love about Peter is he's always willing to try. It, it, I mean, it's, it's so cool. <laughs> he wants to love Jesus. He desperately wants to love Jesus. And he wants Jesus to know that he loves him. Peter wants to love Jesus on his own terms. A love that would keep Peter comfortable and safe. And that kind of love simply won't do. <laughs> and throughout his life, we see and we sense that Peter's intentions are noble. He sees Jesus on the water. He's in the boat. What does he do? I'm coming, Jesus. Boom, right out of that boat. Gone. Right? We see it. Jesus is talking about his soon coming death in another gospel. And Peter, Peter says, I'll never let that happen to you. A response to which Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Later in the garden during the arrest of Jesus, who is the disciple that pulls out the sword chops off the ear. Peter. Then he gets into a foot race with John. Remember that? Easter morning, foot race with John, getting to get, see the empty tomb. I got to see. I got to see. And after the resurrection, he, he's wallowing in his denial of Jesus. He's sad. He's out fishing on the water and looks out on the beach, and there's Jesus cooking some fish. And what does he do? <laughs> Head first dive into the water, and you imagine Peter desperately swimming to get to Jesus on the shore. You can't fault Peter for not trying. You, you, you can't look at Peter and say, the man didn't care. He wanted to love Jesus, but he's trying on his own strength and his own effort. And according to his own determined and desired ways of love. And when our intentions are more about what we desire 
than what Jesus has actually commanded our attentions, even if well-meaning, will always lead us astray. Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. Think about the fullness of that statement. And on his own effort, based on his own understanding and what that might mean and how that might look, he's going to fail miserably. Jesus' next words allude to Peter's coming demise. Look at verse 38. Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? Peter has it all wrong. I tell you the solemn truth, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Indeed, it would not, it could not be Peter who would lay down his life for Jesus. For that sacrifice would have meant nothing for the rest of the world. It was Jesus who had to lay down his life, who had to offer his body as a living sacrifice, who had to demonstrate the greatest act of love that humanity has ever or will ever know before any of us could even attempt to live out this greatest command. Church, we love because he first loved us. It's not our love that comes first. It's the love of Jesus. And it is Jesus' very love and this very act of love that he lays down his life for us that should compel and motivate us towards patterns and attitudes of love today. The new command is not to love how we want to be loved, but it's to love as we have been loved by Jesus. And church, I will tell you today that loving others in this manner, it is the Spirit's work in our lives within each and every one of our hearts and minds, we cannot drum up this kind of love on our own determination or efforts. It can only be motivated and developed as the Spirit is taking root in the bosom of our hearts. He has to do this work. And it's His to do. And He will be faithful to do it. And while Paul exhorts that this is our reasonable service in Romans chapter 12 to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, he's also quick to remind us that it is the Spirit who is at work within and through us. I might present my body as a living sacrifice, but when discomfort and pain comes to define my daily, day-to-day Ordeals, it is the Spirit's strength, it's the Spirit's power, it's the Spirit's persistence that keeps me on the altar. Because, friends, I've been telling you, if it depended on me, I'd be long gone. It's too hard. We sang today, He will hold me fast. As we sang that today, sometimes I think, man, he holds me fast to the altar. It's hard to live 
broken and poured out. And not because we're trying so hard on our own efforts, because it's uncomfortable to love in this manner. Jesus washing feet in the text is not something that we're just to pour over without realizing what that scene, what that moment would have created within the hearts and the minds of the disciples who were gathered around the table. And the exhortation to offer our bodies as living sacrifice, it's not an unreasonable request. For that which we've been called to has already been performed perfectly for us in the person and work of Jesus. I just want to read this. This is in the New Testament, in, in, the, in Paul's letter to a church in Philippi. He says this, Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude towards one another that Christ Jesus had. Can you hear the words of Jesus in John 13, 35 here? They will know you are my disciples by your love. The standard of love is Jesus. What does that look like? Paul's going to describe it for us right here. Having the same attitude towards one another that Christ Jesus had who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The great love of Jesus becomes the standard for the fulfillment of the new command that he would give. And the command, as it was given, began to work and have great effect. And it continues today. Think back to that room in John 13. Think back to that Last Supper. Think back to the saints who were gathered around the table. What became of that group? Some of them, like Judas, yeah, they, they betrayed and abandoned Jesus. Their lives were short. His life was short. But others, the majority of those who were in that room, who had their feet washed by Jesus, the majority of them were the very ones that the Spirit would mightily work through to lay the foundations of the early church. Many of those people in that room would give their very lives, their literal lives, for the cause of Christ and the church. They saw. They were motivated. They followed the example of Jesus. They lived broken and poured out. Even to the point of death. The qualities of this love are expressed and sorted out in any numbers of ways. Through the Christian life, all of them are spirit produced as we live in submission to the example of Jesus. And we know these things, right? From from first Corinthians, we read about love is 
patient. Love is kind. It's gentle. There's humility involved. There's sacrifice involved. Forgiveness. We know all these patterns of love. Confession, repentance, lament, mercy, goodness, joy, peace, forbearance, self-control. There's thoughtfulness. There's care. There's prayer. Persistence. There's perseverance. There's faith. There's hope. All of this tied into this life of love that we've been called to. And perhaps a question for us to wrestle with is what might this love look like today or even this week in our own lives to the people that God brings us into contact with every day? Who has Jesus placed in front of us now that we have been commanded to love in this manner? Maybe it's our family members, maybe it's our neighbors, perhaps it's co-workers, friends, maybe even a stranger. Perhaps, perhaps, this is hard, church, but it's there. Maybe even an enemy. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This love costs something. It costs something. Laying aside our own comfort our own security to meet the needs and to lift and to encourage and to build up or to bear with. Sometimes it's bearing with another person, friends. Sometimes that's the love that we're called to. We need to bear with another person. And that can be hard. You all know somebody in your life. You're thinking about them right now. They're in your mind. Maybe that's the person this week that Jesus is calling you to live broken and poured out before. It could be seen in an uncommon act of grace and kindness. Maybe it's revealed in a vulnerable and humble posture that moves us towards gently beginning to restore a broken relationship. Are there broken relationships in their life? Friends, I encourage you, they need to be repaired. The Spirit can do it through you. He can. He's powerful and strong enough to reconcile relationships when we're broken and humble and vulnerable enough to step out in faith. He can do the work of repair. Perhaps for some of us, it's in the daily clinging to Jesus while we're desperately seeking his guidance and direction and trying to stabilize or hold together our marriage or a difficult relationship with a child or a loved one. Some of us have lived in those places before. Some of us have lived in those places where we've been so hurt by the people that we love the most. And we can't imagine what it would look like to love that person, in the same manner that we've been loved by Christ. So all we can do is fix our eyes on Jesus and keep going.
Perhaps it's demonstrated in our daily dependence on the Spirit's guidance and wisdom to sustain and motivate our energies and efforts throughout the day. Have you ever just grown weary in love? That person in your life, I'm fallen. Somebody's going to have to come up here and give me some love. (laughs) That person in your life who just, it's like impossible. And you're grown weary. And you don't have any more energy or effort to put into the relationship. Right? You've heard it. They don't warm me out. That's where it, it, friends, it can't depend on us. If it does, we're going to fail. We won't have the energy and effort to do it. Spirit can produce it within us and through us. Trust and obey. Walk by faith, not by sight. It can go a long way. Whatever it is. However it might look. Whoever Jesus is calling us to direct this love towards in our life, maybe in a special way this week, for this love to meet the requirements of the new command as given by Jesus, it must look like the love that he has showed us. And as we close and our team comes, if you're here today and this act of love, this kind of love is foreign to you, You've never heard of a person that loved like this that would be willing to lay down his own life to save those who were in desperate need. Today's your day to believe. Today's your day to look to Jesus and to recognize that Jesus demonstrated that kind of love for you. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, not after we got ourselves cleaned up and our act together, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if you're here today and you've never received Christ, if you're listening today and you've never received Christ and This kind of love has seemed so foreign and wishy-washy to you and just out there and you've never been able to actually put a name and a face and recognize what absolute unconditional love looks like. Today's the day to look to Jesus because he's demonstrated it. To look to him and to believe that he is the perfect sacrifice who laid down his life to atone for your sins, to cover for your sins, for my sins, and that there is life and there is forgiveness and there is freedom to be found in his name. Let's bow and pray. Father, we believe. Lord, we believe. We are so thankful for this example of love that was demonstrated by Jesus in so many ways beginning in this room with the washing of your disciples' feet, to consider, Lord, that the Savior of the world would wash the feet of his disciples and then lay down his own life for them. We have been loved extravagantly by you. 
And Lord, it feels overwhelming for us to consider that you have called us to love others in the same manner that we have been loved. And we come face to face in texts like these with the reality that we can't do this without you. You must do this in and through us. We are inadequate by ourselves to reflect this kind of love. We need your help and we're desperate for it, Lord. Father, when our energy wanes, when our endurance is giving way, when we feel like we're falling short, when we're running on fumes, lift us up on wings as eagles. Carry us. Help us to demonstrate this love. When it's beyond our imagination to even understand where to begin, make a way, Lord. We know you can do it. Help us cling to Christ, to be dependent on his example, to find our way through his word. Help us to love. And Lord, if for the first time today, this is new and we're just realizing that we've been loved in this way that we've never considered before. That someone would lay down their life to resolve the greatest problems that plague us, sin and death. And to give us a way to be right with you. If this is the first time that we're hearing this message today and this love is becoming very real as we look to the person and work of Jesus. Then I pray that even now in these moments that we would just turn from our sin, that we would confess. Lord, I fall short. I need you. I believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe that he laid down his life for me. That he rose from the dead in power. I believe he's coming again. I believe that he's rescued me. And Father, if today is the first day that we've ever prayed that prayer, considered those thoughts, then today is a day of great victory and rejoicing. As we've been adopted into your family as your children. Through the work of Jesus. Lord, thank you again for our time in the word. Thank you for the example of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the challenge of the new command he gives us to love. Might we glorify you in all of the ways that we live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.